0: And read the scriptures. First Corinthians chapter ten in the first seven verses. First Corinthians ten in the first seven verses. And I'm reading from the ESV. And it's just so great to be here with you guys. I look forward to this time all week. Getting together, everybody, seeing your faces. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. First part of verse 7. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, in our fathers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless these words and speak to us. Thank you for the introduction that we've already heard and the prepared life that we can live. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, just been You may have heard this, but I was thinking about a sad story that we had heard last month. There was a pop star, a South Korean singer, songwriter, radio host, and author named Kim Jong-hyun. I think you pronounce his last name. He was the lead vocalist of the South Korean boy band, SHINee. Have you guys heard of him? Okay. Uh, He committed suicide on the 18th of last month at the age of 27. And you know what he said? When I was reading this, this struck me very deeply. He said, I am broken from the inside. I am broken from the inside. And I think of these words... And if you see a picture of him, I mean, a great-looking guy, young guy, 27 years old. And I think, what was I doing in my life at the age of 27? I was getting ready to get married. I met my amazing wife uh, years before. We were getting married. I was taking a team to Ukraine, and that was the beginning of an awesome series of church plants all over the Ukraine, and uh, just many people got saved. And at the age of 27, life was just starting for me in a lot of ways. And I think of this guy here. He was—he had it all. He—he uh, he had it, He had everything. He had the spotlight. He had everything. Yet there was a spiritual overthrow inside of his soul. He said, "I'm broken on the inside." I wonder how many people today say that. Um, I wonder how many of us in this room say that. I know that I say that sometimes. I am broken on the inside. I'm broken from the inside. And brokenness is something that we all. St- Experience and something that we face every day as fallen human beings as brokenness. And I think that when we look here at these verses, we see a very broken situation with the Hebrews. And for some context, if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we know that the chapters of the Bible were added later, centuries later, uh, that this was a continual flow of a stream of thought and stream of consciousness for Paul. And as he's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, He's talking about several things in his very broken relationship with his his church that he had planted, the Corinthians. He was a pastor of this church. And yet he said to them, in all of their complexities of the relationship, he said, basically in chapter 9, I know who I am in Christ. I know who you are in Christ. I love you, and I'm living with a destiny in my life, and I'm not going to get hijacked by the situation And I am living with, in the last verse there of chapter 9, I'm living with self-discipline because there's nothing distracting me. Your sin, your situations, your issues are not distracting me, he said, basically. And so there's two points that we can read in these verses that we just read now. Two points, and I want to talk to them, talk to you about them this morning. The first point is, the Hebrews were on a 40-year journey of being persuaded how wonderfully unique they were in God's eyes. Imagine that 40-year journey in the wilderness. And the purpose of that journey in God's mind was to show them how uniquely valuable they were as a people. The second point was most of them, and this is sad, this is sad, most of them chose to be unaware of their preciousness. Most of them, and we see this even today majority of people choose against the awareness of how precious they are. When we read these words, and I want to to kind of work backwards. I want to start from verse 7 and work backwards. I just want to hit a few words before we do that. Number one, Paul here says, I don't want you to be unaware, meaning I don't want you to be just ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. It's a very general word in the Greek, ignorant. I just don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. And that actually is brothers and sisters, that our fathers who were under the cloud. And you know what the cloud speaks of? I'm going, to, I'm going to get into it a little bit later, but the cloud speaks of unclarity. It speaks of times we have to make decisions by faith in who God is. And they all pass through the sea. Sea just speaks of the impossibility of situations. It speaks about things that I cannot do, things, barriers that hit our life that keep us from proceeding. Barriers. And they ate, all, they ate, in verse 3, the same spiritual food, that, that manna that came every morning, and drank of the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And it wasn't a literal rock that was following them underground. It was a rock that would appear wherever they were at the time that they needed those provisions. Nevertheless, most of them, God was not pleased. And when we read that, there's a part of us that cringes. When I read that, I cringed a little bit. With most of them, God was not pleased. And what is that saying there? Is it saying that God doesn't love these people? Does it say that, God, that they didn't meet God's standard of performance? Does it mean that God's relationship with the Israelites were, were based on their performance? Hardly. It's not what it's saying. It's, the Greek there points to a word that says that God didn't have a lot of great things to say about them. Basically, it's saying that God was saying this: their situation is not a great situation. They are broken from the inside, and God was broken. God was brokenhearted about that, and He said God was not well pleased with them. Now, these things took place as an example for us, us church age. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. He's saying that you, right now, Corinthians. Us here today in this room, during the church age, we are really the center right now of God's attention. We are really the center of God's love and God's attention and his work. And he says, these things took place as an example for us that we would not desire evil. The word evil there, it's a word that just means, it's a basic word for evil and it just means worthless. we say that word evil, that's a really big word in our society today, isn't it? Like evil, like, you know, the evil dis- despot that you know lives somewhere overseas and killing all of his people and just this megalomania. No, evil here is another word. It's a it's worthless. It means it's a word that's used to describe a soldier who does not know what courage means. It means a man that was prepared and equipped for something, a person that was equipped for something, but's not living in their eternal purpose. That's not living in what they were created to to be. It means someone who is just, it is something that has great potential, but it's, sadly, it's it's not helping us right now. It's worthless. Those are strong words. That we might not desire evil, worthlessness, as they did. And then he says in verse 7, and we want to start working backwards from here, do not be idolaters. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. I think a lot of pulpits, You can hear messages about idolatry and you can walk out the door and just say, everything that I own is bad. Everything I want to do is bad. Everything that I experience is bad. I don't want us to be thinking that way this morning because that's not what this word is saying. The Bible is saying it gives some amazing definition about idolatry. Idolatry basically is something or anything that is more important to me than God. That's what it is. It's just anything that's more important to me than who God is. Another point is an idol, an idol is anything so central and essential, so, something that I need so much in my life that without it, that without it, my life would have no value and it would have no purpose and would have no, it would have no uniqueness without its presence. This is what an, an idol is. Francis Bacon, he was a 16th century English philosopher, said this, and I like, this, I like what he said here because it, although it was in the 1500s when he writes this in England, I think it's so applicable to us today that there are four idols in humanity. And if you look back through the span of humanity all the way back to the garden, you're going to find at least four major idols. And I want to read them quickly here to you this morning. Idol of the tribe. The idol of the tribe. What does that mean? That there are ethnic and national and socioeconomic political idols. That people hold up and they call this the idol of the tribe. In our American society, we have these tribe idols as Americans. Uh, In our ethnic groups, some of us are from northern Europe, some of us from other places. And we have a history genetically embedded inside of us of idols that were worshipped centuries ago and that's part of our tribal identity and we have to be careful that I'm going to move on here the idol of the cave the idol of the cave Francis Bacon said that there are idols that we take and we hide them in our caves these are areas of our life that no one sees these are the hidden weirdness (laughs) every one of us has weirdness and, and darkness that we worship in secret Every one of us, myself included. The stuff that we have, and we're like, God forbid that anybody ever finds out that this has happened or is happening in my life. And we hide it in the cave, and that's an idol. Whether it's failure or whatever it is, depression or what, whatever, we can, we, can ever, we can fill that blank with so many things. Number three, the idol of the marketplace. The idol of the marketplace. Isn't this an idol today? Where we have things that are put on these stools and on, on these on these platforms, and we look at them and they are just idolized, you know? They are just me, and we call this materialism. I don't know, I like cars. I really like cars. I like riding in cars, I like, I just like cars. I don't know what they, and I don't know what it is, but to look at a car and to see a car drive by, I mean, you know, I saw a Lamborghini the other day, and he was driving so slow, I was like, if I own that car, I would be, like, not driving 45 miles an hour. I mean, he's driving slow. I don't know about you guys, but I just like cars. And, and you know, you look at it, and, they, and you look at a nice car, and it kind of sparkles, doesn't it? I don't know. Some of you women are like, no, I don't like cars. I like um, yeah. dishes or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Curtains or <laughs> I don't know. What? To, what. <laughs> we look at it, and it sparkles, and it almost has, like, a halo around it, doesn't it? It's just like... It's like emanating from, you know, enough about cars, but (laughs) materialism is such a part of our society in suburbia here. You know, the woodlands, the spring, in spring, this area, it's materialism, right? It's the have and the have-nots. we have to be careful because if God has blessed us with some material things, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, we have to guard our heart that it does not change our heart. Then there's the idol of the theater, the idol of the theater. I read late last night I was preparing, I read this crazy thing by a very reputable magazine, Time magazine said this. That. He said, the, uh, they said that the, it was actually time.com. And they said this last January, they said, the average person watches 568 hours a year of Netflix. <laughs> 568 hours, you know, sometimes we are so busy with things and the good question is, is what are we busy with? But I wanna move on here. These four idols really impregnate and, and penetrate our society. Psalm, Psalm 115 verse 8 tells us that whatever controls me is my Lord. Whatever is controlling me is my Lord. The person, and this verse is telling us two things. The, the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks security is controlled by security. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by people he or she wants to please That's idol worship. People, men pleasers, fearing people. Fearing people is actually idolatry. Sometimes blessings that God has given us can turn into idols. And they turn into idols when they turn into the ultimate destination in my life. It becomes a blessing, and it's not wrong to have blessings. And I don't want us to ever think in a way that God has blessed me and I should feel bad about that. But a blessing, sometimes God will test us, test my relationship with a blessing to make sure that it's not something that I'm worshiping instead of the giver and the, and the, and the, the greatest gift. This happened with Abraham and his son Isaac as he brought him to the altar. Two things here, the whole quest, the whole quest, the whole point the whole thing that we are looking for very often is just that sense of feeling valuable, that valuable, that's feeling of valuable. And this is what drives a lot of idol worship. It drives a lot of, it was driving a lot of what these Hebrews that were coming out of Egypt and discovering their identity before they could possess the promised land. I think that God needed to take them through this wilderness so that he could speak to them inwardly about who they were before they could understand what they were going to possess. Because if we don't understand who we are in the eyes of God, then we're, we're not going to understand what he has for us in his plan. And so most of the time it could be, and it doesn't have to be this way, but most of the time it could be that God is educating you and I about how precious, how unique we are in Christ through the blood of Jesus Christ. That if we understood how wonderfully made we are as a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5, if we could grasp that, we would be able, we would, we, we would be so able to see the incredible mighty hand of God in every area of our life, in our city, in our homes, in our countries, and in this whole world that we've been called to impact with the gospel. Let us learn, let us learn how valuable we are in Christ. Spend more time discovering who you are in Christ and less time living in self-condemnation and the garbage that we fill our minds with. Be careful, what we, be careful what you consume. And I don't mean just food. I'm just saying we become what enters the eye gate no matter how much we think that we can mitigate that. We are becoming what we are looking at. There's no way, and I'm going to talk about this another time, If I'm looking at Jesus Christ, if I'm looking at the wondrous words and the promises of God in Psalm 139, that we were fearfully and wonderfully made, and that before we think a thought, God has already thought it through. And he's loved us in that thought. And before we meet a valley, he has met us in that valley. you know something? Whatever valley that we face today, God's already there. There are valleys in, in, in the future of our lives, and God's already there waiting for you. And he's got a provision there for you. And he's got angels there waiting for you. And he's got preparation. He's got answers to prayer waiting for you. Don't get discouraged. And don't lose your sense of, valuable, of, of, of value. Tim Keller said it this way. We all seem to derive some value from our familiar circles. But people ultimately want and need that sense of assurance of unique value from some outside source. A sense of recognition and sense of worth coming from circles that we cannot control. Let's go back to that young man, Kim, who ended his life at the age of 27. Think of his life. Think of his world. I mean, this guy would be someone, I think, that just about every, every person would admire. Like, he could have anything he wants. He, he could show up in a crowd and just get a, an instant no, uh, instant recognition, he had circles that he controlled. He could show up with his band and pack out a place. He was a gifted singer. He had a great future, didn't he? He controlled that. But eventually that gets old, it gets tired, and you're looking for something that's going to affirm your value as a human being outside of your circle. That part of the world that you and I can't control This is the whole thing about social media is that is that people are projecting something in circles that they cannot control, looking for affirmation for their value. Does that make sense? Because in their worlds that they are controlling, that they are that they are able to influence and that they are able to make people say and do the things that they want them to do and say. That gets old and that gets boring and that gets empty. And so they begin to look outside of their circles of influence. They begin to say just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more fame, just a little bit more stimulation. And they begin to look outside of their circles of control. And they are, and they are, they are desperately looking for their value. This kid, okay, he was looking for his value. I, I was thinking today, this morning, as I was getting ready, I was wondering, and you know, there are stories Of men and women that have had contact with people such as this man, that have shared the gospel with men and women, and they've heard the gospel. And we know, my wife and I know some of these people. We've heard some of the stories. God is so just that the gospel gets into everybody's heart before they die. He is so just, and He's so kind, and He's so gracious that the gospel of grace, they hear it before they pass. And I was just thinking, was there someone that could sit down with this kid and say, you know what? I love you. You're awesome. I just need to tell you something that you're not going to discover your value by living in a world of stimulation and in a world of filling the void. Because that sense of value, and that's what that word agape means in the Greek, that word love. Love is a type of love that means that it's a self-sacrificial love for something that we find great value in. For example, when Paul says about Demas, Demas has left me because he, he loved this present world. That Greek word there is agape. He self-sacrificially loved this world because there was something that he was looking for value. There was something in his soul that was not reflecting. Or let's say it this way. He was not living. He was not looking at the mirror that reflected back to him who he was in Christ. This is the church. This is us. This is who we are today in this room. We are people that reflect to each other who you and I are in Christ. I look at a young person. I look at a teenager. And you know what? I see, I see them 10, 20 years down the road. I see their potential. I see what God could do in their lives. I, 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 can see what, I can see what God wants to do in their lives. I'm not a prophet, and I'm not a seer, but I can see their potential. And I'm so excited about that when I talk to a young person. That's why I want to see young people go to camps like this that we just showed earlier and take mission trips. Because we are looking for our value. I was a teenager at the age of 17 in high school. And at that time in my life where I was looking for my personal value as a teenager and not getting it from my school, not getting it from my circles of friends, not getting it from anywhere else, and there was only one place for me to look. And that was for me to look to an unknown God that I did not know and say, God, I believe but help my unbelief. And at that moment... God sent people into my life, little by little, that began to reflect to me my value as a... My parents were great. My parents were great. Parents can only go so far. (laughs) And we need the body of Christ. We need to be in a place that's reflecting to us who we are in Christ. And so people are seeking this sense of assurance of their unique value from an outside source. This is what idolatry is. This is what C.S. Lewis says about idolatry. He says... He says, idolatry is sin, and sin is misplaced attempts to answer deeper needs. That's what it is. It's just missing the mark of who we are. Sin, I think sometimes we can hear a message about sin, and it's like, don't do that. Don't do this. And we say that stuff because that stuff is a destructive lifestyle, and it's empty. But you know something? Sin is just missing the point of it's, it's misplaced attempts to answer deeper needs. We have deeper needs And sin is just a symptom of something that's going on deeper. And instead of dealing with the root cause, many times we go to religious meetings and we're hearing about the symptoms and the root cause is not being addressed. I like this, and I was thinking about this last night, and and if you remember one thing, just remember this. Counterfeit gods always disappoint. Counterfeit gods always disappoint. And often destructively so. Let me just, let's go back to that verse where it says that many of them were overthrown in the desert. You know what that word is in the Greek? It's a picture. Eduardo and I were talking about it yesterday afternoon here. It's a picture of dead bodies strewn across a battlefield. It's a pretty graphic picture. Many of them were overthrown in the wilderness. It speaks of isolation. And it speaks of being outside of the purpose. Counterfeits, Counterfeit gods always disappoint. And I think this is what, this is what our, our example here, Kim, was facing. He was seeking that sense. He was seeking true value, true love. And he was chasing it in his particular bent, in his particular talent. And that counterfeit God in his life constantly disappointed him. Constantly disappointed him. And not only disappointed, but destructively so. Let me just listen, listen to this. The counterfeit gods always disappoint, and often destructively so. They are overly demanding, and it's never enough. In the end, after you've sacrificed everything to these idols, the, the Christ-shaped hole in your soul remains unfilled. Isn't that unbelievable? Have you been there? I have where you have a counterfeit God, and it's, your, and it's there because you have this hole in the soul that is only shaped to fit Christ. And only Christ is going to fill that. And when we talk to our young kids, when we talk to our daughters, and we talk to our sons, we want them to know that there's a hole in your soul, and only Christ can fill that and make you feel valuable and loved because He is the one who created us. Because idols blind us. They blind us, don't they? Idols blind us. They blind us. They change our perspective on what's important in our life and what really matters. What really matters. And this is the, this is the questions that we, we, we want to be asking ourselves. We want to be asking our kids, our friends at our workplace. We want to be asking ourselves this question. Is what I'm doing the most important thing that I could be doing right now in my life? Of course, we got work. Of course, we got things, responsibilities. But what is the big thing in my life? What is the big thing? What's the big picture? And I think that the world that we live in, and you and I, I'm there with you. We all face it. We feel the downward pull of the details of domestic life, of business life, of family life, of personal life, and our personal need to get away and, 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 and have a break. This pulls us down, but let's keep the big thing, the big thing. And I want to mention that thing in a moment. Number two, and this is the second point I want to make as we, as we wrap this up, idols cannot be remedied by only repenting. Idol worship cannot be remedied by only repenting. You know, the Anthony family comes, they were born in India, and in their country there's about 250 million different idols, right? And they have crazy idols They have have a god there that looks like an elephant that's just, I think it's called Kali. And it's just, or or there's, I don't know what it is, but they are these demonic Ganesh. And it's these demonic gods that require sacrifice and human sacrifice and death. And they feed on blood. And it's just like a horror show. These are what idols truly are. And idols cannot be remedied by just repenting that you have an idol or using willpower to try to live differently. This is not what I'm saying today. When you walk out the door today, I don't want you to think, okay, the pastor wants me to repent and and try to live with willpower over my idols. No. Sin cannot be pruned off like a weed. It'll continue to grow back. You ever have weeds in your garden? And the more you pull them out, and you think you're pulling out the root, but they grow back because there's something deeper has to happen. Because God's law, the Ten Commandments, are powerless to change the human heart and cannot remove our, our false idols. Every one of us here face false idols and the way to deal with those. And I don't want us to feel condemned today. I want you to understand how wonderfully valuable and loved you are. We are bought with a price in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are not our own. We are so valuable. And the devil wants to hide from you and I how beautifully amazing you are in your, in your position in Christ. In, in John chapter 1 verse 12. That we have power with God as sons and daughters of God. But the law, God's law is powerless to change the human heart and cannot remove our, our false idols. The law can only define them, telling us what they really are. And we need that. Instead, the idol must be replaced by this, knowing our value that we're loved by God. That the love of God, it changes everything. The love of God When we know, and and you see something, Uh, it has to go beyond theology, it has to go beyond this message. There has to be a Romans 5 event every time we hear the word of God. In chapter 5, verse 5, that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us, shed abroad in our hearts the love of God. I think it's verse 5. Correct me if I'm wrong. that the the Holy Spirit would shed abroad. It's 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 like a dawn and the rays of the sun just spreading through the clouds after a very dark night, that the Holy Spirit would shed abroad in our hearts the love of God, the love of God. Have you had it? Have you had the glimpses of the love of God? Not just an emotion or a feeling, but the unconditional love of God. When you and I feel like that we are the least qualified to receive this love, He loves us. So much more grace abounded where sin, where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. This is the kind of God that we serve. Let's not let our Christianity dwindle to a works program because then we are no no longer any different than any pagan religion on this planet. I think there are six. I'm going to leave you with six things. I like I like lists. And when I just finish and this is verse one, we've worked from verse six, verse seven back to verse one. How are we delivered practically from idol worship? Because remember, remember these points: an idol is something that we create to fill the Christ-shaped hole in our soul. Every one of us has it, okay? Every one of us has it. And we create this idol and we put that idol in there. We look at it, but we're putting it inside. Whether that's fame, security, whether it's the god of, whether it's the idol of the marketplace, we're filling it with something. How do we get delivered from that? Number one, I think, in number one, it comes this way. And we see this in verse one. It comes by becoming aware that the fathers of our faith, just look at the fathers of our faith. I think Pastor Jomie spoke about one of them, Henry Martin. Look at the men and women of God that have gone on before us, and look at their faith. Look at the way they walked with God and trusted God. You know, look at them. That's what it says in verse one. I would not have you unaware. You know what that means? It means that we don't know what we don't know. Oh, I said that this week. Just we don't know what we don't know. I thought that's a great that's a great word right there. You and I do not know what we do not know. <laughs> that's, that's, prof- that's pretty profound, right? You don't know what you don't know, and that's why we got to know. That's why we got to. That's why we got to absorb the word. We got to absorb God's mind. Open the Bible and just absorb His thoughts towards us that are many. Number two, a sense of eternal purpose and destiny in God's calling. The Hebrews were in the desert, and God wanted them to understand. As they were being baptized unto Moses, meaning that they were learning how to follow Moses in a faith walk that sometimes got really cloudy, that sometimes got very undefined, and we had to just and just as the pillar of the cloud of God's presence moves through the desert, and the and the Hebrews followed that, same with us, that as we as a church, as a team, as a family, as an individual follow. The cloud. Sometimes it gets unclear. And as, that, as we do that, we're going to be sometimes faced with these seas, these impossible events, where it's like if God does not move, the Egyptians are going to be upon us and we're going to be dead. You ever been to that place in your life? God, if you do not move, I am just dead. Because there's this massive sea. And I think mean, God creates, you know, the more, of our, the more our ability, I think the bigger the sea God has to create. So that we can see him part it. A sense of eternal purpose and destiny. Live with this eternal purpose. I'm going to finish in three minutes here. Live with purpose. Let me ask you this. Do you know what your calling is? Do you know what God is calling you? Maybe you don't know. But as a teenager, as a 17-year-old, I remember walking to high school thinking, I just sense a purpose in my life. And I have no idea what it is, but I just sense purpose. And I'd walk to school and I'd be thinking, God, I don't, I would sometimes feel His presence, sometimes I wouldn't, but I think, I got a calling. I got a calling in my life. And it's bigger than this stupid school that I'm going to. I was going to a stupid high school, Dover High School. And if you're listening to this and you're from Dover High School, please don't be offended. It was a stupid school full of drugs and just stupid people. And and there were Christians there. And I just thought, what a stupid place. And I thought, i got such a greater purpose in my life. Number three, passing through the cloud of faith. And I talked about this already, God's presence. Number four, passing through the sea of impossibility. When we're doing that by faith, God is delivering us from our idols. Number five, eating the same spiritual food. I just can't stress this enough. Eating the same spiritual food. Really guard what you're feeding your soul. And what's the spiritual food that they were eating? We know it was manna, but what does manna represent? It, It represents in Deuteronomy chapter four, the broken body of Christ. Let's feast on that, that Jesus was broken for me. I think... Every woman has that dream of a, of a knight in shining armor. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong. This is just a man's presumption of the way a woman thinks, which is always wrong. Whenever we do that, we get ourselves in trouble. I think every woman desires to have that man come in the shining knight in shining armor, and come and rescue them, swipe them off their feet. Jesus did that. He came in on the scene unannounced, and he swept us off of our feet. And let's feed on that broken body. Amen. The broken body of Jesus Christ. Let's feed on that every moment. And number six, drinking the same drink, the blood of Christ. Drinking the same drink. You know, Jesus was broken and his blood was shed for your forgiveness. Feed on that. And when we feed on these six things, guess what happened. And I like the number six because it's a number for man, fallen man. When we feed on these things, we are delivered from our idols because idols are more powerful than us without understanding who we are in Christ. Feed on him. And you know what happens? We have a revelation of who you are and our value as a creation. And that's what God wants us to understand today. As we leave today, that we would understand that I'm not just a tale, some afterthought. I'm not a mistake, but I have a purpose. And I'm bigger than my failures, and I'm bigger than my past, because God has called us into something wonderful, an awesome future for your family. It may take some years. He's got an awesome future. If you're a young person listening today, God's got a great future for you. It's going to be better than what the world can offer in the form of a dumb, deaf, speechless idol that will always disappoint you, that will always ask for more and leave you empty. Amen? Let's pray.